All right. Hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. And uh, we have a special treat for my uh, Shroud fans in the audience. I am back with the panel review shows where I bring on some experts. You can see I've got three experts uh, here today. Uh, so directly to my right, we have returning Shroud skeptic, Hugh Ferry. Hey, Hugh. Hello. Welcome back. Welcome back. And uh, we also have a, on the pro shred side, a couple of uh, returnees. We have Joe Marino. Hey, Joe. Hey. Welcome back. It's been Thank a while. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, Mark Antinacci, who I think was on, you were on the last, uh, both of you guys were actually on the last one, part seven um, on the Pontius Pilot coins and stuff. Um, mm. So yeah, well, welcome back, Mark. Good to be here. Awesome. All right, cool. So the plan for today is we are going to be looking at mostly the traditional painting hypothesis and uh, how does that uh, make sense as a, an explanatory hypothesis for the shroud images. But before we get into that, I just want to spend um, a very quick amount of time, maybe half an hour at most, uh, kind of going over what are the physical and chemical properties or what I call the minimal relevant features of the shroud's body and bloodstain images. And I went over this with Hugh privately just to see where's the agreement and disagreement. Um, as we'll see, the good news is we kind of agree on most of them. I think there was only two that Hugh took issue with that you guys can discuss. But uh, just for the audience sake, I'm just gonna share my screen and just kind of sh show up what these minimal relevant features are that we're gonna go over. Um, all right, and where is it? Okay, hopefully that's, is that popping up? Do you guys see the Excel file? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. So, so yeah, this, these are the features that I use in evaluating all the image forming mechanisms. And so Hugh, uh, in terms of, he takes issue with photographic, fine, throw that out. But the point is it's, and they, it's, akin to a negative image. The lights and darks are re reversed, or at the very least, it's a quasi-negative image. Um, everyone agrees with that. Um, the shroud images are relatively highly resolved, and Stirp has given a specific quantification for that. Um, there is image diffuseness um, to the images, meaning they don't have definable borders. Um, in terms of body image uniformity, uh, so there's the uniform intensity of color. Each and every single fabril is colored the exact same intensity of color. Um, and then there's the uniform dense max densities. So the dark dark maximum darkness of the front and the dorsal images are the same color. Um, there's also substance uniformity, but this this is a fact contingent on assuming, it was a real body. Obviously some artistic mechanisms disagree with that. So I'm not assuming that with this, I'm saying if the skeptic grants me there's a body, then we have this feature known as substance uniformity. Um, we also have uh, the three-dimensional or technically the topographical information encoded in the uh, darknesses and of the shroud images. Um, also, the shroud images are continuous and include non-contact zones, non-contact with the qualifier that it, from the perspective of a body lying in the supine position with a naturally draped cloth. 
Um, there would need to be some kind of pressure to get certain areas like at the sides of the cheeks. There's no body sides or top of the head images. Um, there's also these vertically mapped wrapping distortions. Um, also in terms of the body images, there's superficiality. Um, so by there's three levels of superficiality. There's the fabric level. It, it doesn't penetrate the back of the cloth, whereas the bloodstains do. Um, there's also at the thread level, uh, so the top, only the top two to three fibrils are colored. And this is our first controversial fact that I'll turn to the audience, turn to the panel members to go over. Uh, but there's also the fiber level superficiality. So only 0.2 micrometers, that primary cell wall of each fiber is colored, a very thin superficial layer. And Hugh does agree with that level of superficiality. Um, and there's also no cementation or capillary action or flow. The fiber, the colored fibers aren't cemented together like with a painting medium or something. And the images aren't fully saturated. They're not as fully dark as they could be. I, I think someone quantified it to about 23% or something like that. Um, so just, uh, Hugh, just outside of the um, the thread level superficiality, I take it with the facts that I've stated there, you, you are fully good with even as a shroud skeptic. Is that right? Um, well, <clears throat> yeah. Well, I think when we were talking about it, I started by disagreeing with them all, um, but sort of slowly explaining how we could reconcile our, our views. But uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll sort of go with that. Okay. I mean, I, I, tried, I, tried to... I, mean okay. I don't. I don't think. I, however, you define a high-resolution image. I mean, I don't, I don't know how big the the resolution of the images that we see each other with at this very moment on what little sort of credit card-sized bits on our screens. And if you're wearing uh, using a phone, a tiny little blob, but the resolution of the shroud is much worse than that. Um, so it, it's it's not a good resolution. Um, but as as portraits go, but but uh, yes. But you would agree with Stirp's quantification of the high resolution, like you know, you can see the lips in between the fingers. The well, yes, but seeing seeing the lips and in between the fingers is is not very good resolution, is it really? I mean, if that's all you can see. Okay, fair. Still, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. It, again, it doesn't matter who's. Can you see the eyelashes? Can you see I'm the fingernails? Just... You know. Okay, so you agree with Stirps? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, somebody said it's really about a centimeter wow. resolution or something like that. Well, if that's good resolution, then that's good resolution. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, awesome. So, okay, so outside of those types of qualifications, which I take into account with my minimal relevant features, there there is a substantive disagreement with the thread level superficiality. So I just want to turn it to the, the panelists. Um, First, Hugh, like what? What's our? What is your objection against the thread level superficiality? That um, do you mean the, uh, the the staining of just the primary cell wall? No, the top two to three fibrils. Uh, I think that's about right. I mean, I don't know whether it's two or three or six, but uh, that's about right. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody's quantified it um, much closer than that. But if you've got a bunch of a uh, hundred or so then, yeah, it seems to be the upper layer. But then I, I think most uh, paints do that anyway. I, I'm, I'm not, it's not that I deny the 
superficiality in most cases. It's just that I don't think it's very remarkable. Okay. Okay. So that, okay. So maybe I misunderstood what you were saying then. So you do mostly affirm the thread level superficiality. Yeah. Okay. And on, on the whole, yeah. But what I find is that if, if I draw on a, on a, a, um, on a piece of cloth and the, the, uh, even if, funnily enough, even if it goes through to the, to the back, I don't know if you've ever uh, tried dropping a drop of blood onto a, onto a little uh, handkerchief or something like that. Let it dry. And you'll find that the blood doesn't go into the thread. It goes round the thread and past the thread and stains the whole cloth. But if you pull the individual threads apart, you'll find that there's no blood in the middle of the thread. And, and I think um, uh, Pierluigi Baima Bologna said that uh, of the shroud threads as well. Okay. Okay. Well, okay, fine. Fair. I, I guess I'll hand it this way because I didn't expect you to agree with that. So uh, for, in the first place, Mark and... Joe, I, I take it you guys are on board with all of the minimal relevant features that I've named up to this point. Uh, Joe, do you mm -hmm. agree with it? Yeah. Yeah. Mark? Do we still have Mark with us? Yeah. Can you hear? Um, is Mark do, still here? Did we lose Mark? I can yeah, I have a, to stop. I sharing. don't see his picture, his little photo. Um, uh -oh, okay. I lost him. Add to stage. Uh, Mark, trying to come in. Mark, can you still hear us? Yeah, it's hard because when I'm sharing my screen, I can't see what's going on. So, okay, well, okay. we should we see the little pictures down the side. Yeah. Okay. Well, I tell you what. Well, while we're waiting for Mark to come back, um, I guess uh, Hugh, I'll, I'll just open it up to you, and I'll share my screen again. But on those facts up to where I've. Uh, represented then, since you mostly agree with them, um, is there anything that you want to say or qualify about those facts up to here? Um, hold on, am I sharing yet? Pop them on again. Um, Any qualifications or something like that? I can't remember. Let's have a look. Um, well, there's there's lots of them that yes, the intensity uniformity and the density uniformity and the substance uniformity. I'm not altogether happy with those. If you look at um, uh, Mark Evans's photographs, um, they don't necessarily show that any particular, that all the fibers that are colored are exactly the same color. Um, some of them are darker than others. Some of them are vary. They're patchy. They, they, they have, um, you know, they, they go light and dark. Um, along the same fibril. So okay. I, I'm, I don't think it's as completely uniform as it appears. Okay. I'll, I'll see if I can get one of Mark's pictures up, if you like. And uh, Okay. Okay. Uh, well, while he's looking for that, Joe, jo, so he is denying the uniform intensity of mm -hmm. color of the shroud <clears throat> fibrils. Uh, what's your take on that? Is this a fact or...? Well, I just, you know, I tend to go with um, the, con you know, the basic consensus um, opinion of Sterp, and you know, just throughout the years, they've already, they've always said um, the intensity is the same. I don't, you know, and they, they looked at the uh, at the cloth firsthand indirectly. I mean, I have to give them credence for 
direct observation. Um, what Hugh, what, what, you know, considering you you haven't looked at the cloth directly. I mean, how? No, no. All, all I can do is look at the um, Marks Evans's you picture know. and say I just don't think that they are all as described. <clears throat> I think the colors vary slightly. I'm just trying so is to it find a subjective. Out. It's a subjective judgment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they don't vary very much. Um, let's see if I can find one of his big ones. I'm on the uh, shroud scope at the moment. Um, okay. And while well, is, is Mark back yet or no? I know we did this. He's he's texted me and said that. Um, both phones went quiet. It's probably the hotspots on the phone that have limited access and seem to go out at the end of the month. I've tried everything and a new problem pops up. So, okay. Uh, we have a screen there, but <clears throat> he's, looking like he's having big problems. <clears throat> yeah. Can I, if I go through present and stuff, can I share yep. a picture? Yep. Present, share screen. Uh, and then it's just share screen. Green, and then I think it's that and that. Okay. Right. Ah. Well, so I can see. What happens if I? There we go. Right. Can you see that? Yep. It's from the eye. Now, if you look at those threads, do you think that every one of them that is coloured is the same colour? Or is there a slight difference in color between one thread? I mean, I think up at the the top line has got a big brick in the middle of it, and some of them are quite faint, and some of them are a bit darker. And I, I so my understanding at this level of magnification, the way it's there are some evident darker areas, but that's my understanding. That is from the concentration of the colored fibrils, like it. It's not uh, it's not as close as we would need to make that judgment that individual fibers are darker than the other. Um, yeah, if I look, I mean, down sort of the if if I go down the the left hand side, there's a there's a, a slightly thinner uh, cloth. The third the third th horizontal thread down, and that seems to me to have a whole bunch there which which are really much darker than some of the others and and I, I i don't think that that's can easily be explained just by saying that there are more or less uncolored fibers mixed in with them i mean i agree it's not easy to see but on the other hand i don't know that anybody looked at it any more closely than that and i've never seen a photograph um that shows it more more efficiently than that and that's one of the troubles you see it's very easy to say well i noticed this but then when you look at it you go well i don't notice it so what did you see can you show me an example of these fibrils next to each other i've got can you see my cursor my little hand yeah yeah well you see here we've got it's quite dark here and then it fades away to much lighter at the edges and it's lighter down here um, so each individual fibril, we've got that's quite a dark bit there, and that's light darker than than this bit here, and they're all lighter than this collection here. It's it's uh, 
it's a bit odd. And, and then and then here you see the colours go deeply down into mm -hmm. the crack in between the two threads. Now, obviously, we can't see what happens when they go out of sight, but it does look as if they go much deeper into the valley between the two threads um, than elsewhere. Here, this seems entirely superficial, doesn't go down into the valley. So, Mark. you know, I mean, I, I agree a, a clearer picture would be nicer to see, um, but we haven't got a clearer picture. And, and this is this is one I'm of just... the problems, one forever looking for, for an example of, of, of what it means. Okay, Let, I just want to check in. Mark, are you, are you uh, okay, I guess not. Um, okay, so, uh, yeah, so Joe, do you, do you have anything, just uh, one last response on this? Um, I have a question uh, as well, because I also want you guys to address, well, it is a fact that it, about two thirds, and Hugh agreed with this when I spoke to him privately, that at least two, two thirds of the um, uh, experts on the shroud do agree with this uniform intensity of color, and uh, presumably they're basing this on the stirp findings in the peer-reviewed literature. So, um, yeah. if it, if it's clearly not the case, this isn't a fact, as Hugh is kind of saying here and trying to show. Why is well, it all saying, these colors are? I'm not saying it's clearly not the case, but the thing is that if somebody says, "I saw this." And 15 other people say we agree with you without actually having seen it themselves. The observation is only as um, worthwhile as, as the first person to make it. And I certainly agree that the first people to make it were actually looking at the shroud um, themselves firsthand in a room. Um, but I think it, it requires closer study than that for it to find out whether it's really true or not. I mean, an interesting corollary to that is I was reading um, Eugenia Nitovsky's assessment of the fact that the um, Heller and Adler thought that the uh, threads were, were corroded differentially according to whether they had image on them or not. And Nitovsky said, well, she couldn't see any corrosion at all um, on the on the tapes and she looked through them and took lots of photographs of them and uh i can't either i mean you can see um joseph kolbeck's pictures of the, the sticky tape slides are sometimes up to times 600 and um they don't as a rule show that even the slides from from the neck and the fingers which are the most intense uh have any corruption on them at all or co corrosion on them at all but it's difficult to know what they meant um, Heller and Adler by corrosion and the sort of thing one, one wish one would be able to talk to them. Okay. Okay, Joe, I'll, I'll let you have the last word on this one. Um, and then I think I want to move on to the next batch of MRFs. So it uh, mm -hmm. looks like we have this one uniformity uh, thing. But yeah, what what's your take on what Hugh's saying and about this consensus that we have? Yeah. Um, I did have a question for Hugh. Do, do you uh, accept the observation that there are some, I think you do, based on what you said earlier, do you accept that there are some uncolored fibers right next to colored fibers? It certainly looks like it. Yes. Okay. Yes, I do. So I guess, I guess my question for that is what, what sort of artistic method can do that? Uh, almost any. Um, 
if you've ever tried getting a paintbrush and just brushing it across uh, a paint or or, or dabbing um, a, a cloth with a with a, a sort of sponge or an ink sponge or something like that, some of the fibers will pick up the um, coloration, whatever it is, and some of them don't. That's that's how you get dark colors and light colors in a monochrome pet sketch or painting or anything like that. You know, if an artist picks up yeah. a paintbrush and paints a, a canvas with one color, mm -hmm. it can either be very dark or very light. It, it, I'm supposing they painted in blue. It could be whatever the, the intense color of the blue that they started with fading away to a very pale blue. And the reason for that is not because they're carefully painting every single fibril. It's just that some of it picks up the color and some of it doesn't as you brush the paintbrush across. Okay. Okay. So, uh, the other, the other facts then just kind of, let's just say this um, is, this is what I've been experimenting with. Oh, let's hold it back here. So this is soaked in, um, iron acetate at the moment. Uh, it's probably dry, but it's just a sort of thing on the, Oh, where is it? Here we are thing on the end of a felt tip pen. And if I dab that down mm. onto a cloth, I can make a color on the surface of the cloth and it doesn't go through. Um, but if I press it hard, um, it'll be a lot denser than if I don't press it hard. Okay. All right. Um, so it's just all one, it's all one color. Um, yeah. All right. Cool. So I just want to finish off uh, going over the f the facts and seeing where we agree, disagree, and that sort of thing. So uh, I had a bit of a surprise. I thought he was gonna. From what we spoke on, I thought you were gonna disagree with superfici superficiality, but instead it's uniformity. So okay. Um, now the next batch of facts, I'm just going to quickly, obviously Hugh is going to disagree with the anatomical accuracy of the Shroudman's images. Uh, we're just going to put that disagreement to the side because, uh, Dr. Gilbert Lavoie will be coming on in November and hopefully in discussion with Hugh about that topic. Um, yes. there are no, is no sufficient amounts of decomposition or putrefaction liquids on the shroud. Um, I agree with that. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, and uh, in terms of the blood stains, there's uh, so you know there's no major alteration, damage, or smearing and evident on the shroud. Um, it's again, it's entrenched. They're positive images. Uh, one of the controversial aspects here that I want um, you guys to discuss is that there's no body images underneath the shroud. Uh, the shroud's uh, blood stains. Uh, now, Hugh, at least what he said. When we spoke before, he takes issue with that. He thinks it's not proven. Um, but just to finish off, it's the shroud body images are directionless. There's no evident brush strokes or anything like that. Uh, the images don't fluoresce under ultraviolet fluorescence and illumination. Um, the there's no in terms of number three. There's no paint. That's going to be a controversial fact. I'm going to put that to the side because that's what we're debating next in the traditional painting hypothesis. There's no layering, no dry powder, no spices or oils or biochemicals associated with the body. Uh, and there's no silver or photosensitizers. Um, so Hugh, outside of the no paint and the anatomical accuracies, um, the only thing that you find controversial is this claim that there's no body images under the blood stains. Is that correct? Uh, yes, <clears throat> I think it's. I, I I don't I don't think it's well proven. Um, Mark, hey Mark. Oh, can can you hear me now? 
Yes. Hello? Yeah. You can hear us. I can hear okay. you. Awesome. Okay, okay. So, so I was just letting Hugh, um, Hugh takes issue with, uh, you know, the claim that there's no body images under the blood stains. Um, so I'm just going to let him give his uh, explanation as to why, and then I'm going to go straight to you to tackle a couple of the things Hugh was saying. So, uh, yeah, Hugh, what? Why do you deny this fact? Um, claimed fact. Well, I, I'm, I don't like to be dogmatic about these things, uh, but as far as I can see, first of all, um, the, the only people who've, who've had any evidence of this at all are Heller and Adler. So anybody who says, you know, oh yes, it's true, or oh yes, it isn't. Is simply following what they wrote um, or what they said, and as I understand it, they took what was a blood-stained uh, fiber, removed the blood using uh, a proteolytic solution, and then they thought that the fiber underneath looked similar to a non-image fiber, and it didn't look similar to an image fiber. And I understand that, but I have extreme difficulty in finding what you can call a blood-stained fiber. Um, I, don't, I don't know if, if you've all seen, I mean, I downloaded them from Barry once. It, they're a massive, I think it's probably about two gigabyte file of all Eugenia Nitovsky's photographs of the, um, of, of, of the Shroud slides. She took about 20 uh, photographs of about 20 different slides. So there's this 400 photographs at about five megabytes each, um, some of which are photographs of the same thing. And it's it's extremely difficult to say how, how you identify this is a blood fiber as opposed to an image fiber. It's very difficult because the blood doesn't, if there is any blood, it, it doesn't cover the fiber uniformly. Anyway, it's you've just got a few dots um, or, or, or specks or, or fragments um, of blood. And so I, I'm not sure how this observation works. And also, of course, Nitowski said that she couldn't see uh, any corroded fibers, whether they were under the blood or the image or the non-image. Anyway, and then also, of course, since only about, as you suggested, about quarter of the fibers are stained with image, because it's very faint, then three quarters of them, even on an intense image area, haven't got any image on them. So most, if there was blood all over that area, you'd expect three quarters of the blood fibers not to have any image underneath them anyway. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I, I think the, the um, evidence for it is poor. That's okay. the best I can say. Fair enough. So, so Mark, uh, you haven't really gotten a chance to speak. So I do want to turn to you to respond to not Alt's, uh, Hugh's claim, denial of the body images underneath the bloodstains and what he just said, but also because you missed out, he also denies the body image intensity uniformity that each individual fibril is colored to the exact same degree. Uh, so do you want to respond to, to those two issues? Oh, uh -oh. oh no! The, um, okay. Oh, don't tell me we lost them again. 
Okay. Okay. Well, Joe, uh, do, do you want to respond to that? Nobody talk to me. Disappears. <laughs> no fraud. No fraud, Joe. Uh, you can take it away then. So. Um, no, I would just say. Um, I know. Um, I mean, he hate, I hate to speak uh, negative of the dead, but um, I know one Sterp member was not impressed with uh, Dr. Nutoski's um, uh, photographic abilities, for what that's worth. But. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Mark, are you back? Yes. Did, did you did you hear uh, Dale's questions to you? Yes. Oh my goodness. The, the body. This is body. So, I, you, oh, go ahead, Mark. I'm sorry. Should we try? Um, you're kind of roboting. You can uh, hear bits of what you're saying. Uh, I've got the phone as close as I can to my face. Um, the body image fibers are uniform, not, not you know, 100%. There's about a 10% variance in the uniformity of, the, of fibers from different locations on the shroud. Um, the fact that there, there may be um, body image under the blood stains or not isn't really that critical. I mean, a lot of the, the, the fibers are basically, the image fibers consist of oxidized, dehydrated cellulose. If the blood is over that fiber, it won't get air and it won't oxidize and dehydrate. You can have image under under the blood or not. It the blood could could block the oxidation process in which the image develops over time. I I don't see it as that significant. Um, that's as uh, condensed of answers I could give both of the questions. Just out of curiosity, whether it's relevant to image formation or not, do you think it is? a proven fact or scientifically established fact that there's no body images under the blood stains, or do you deny that? I just don't think they've had enough um, blood stain fibers to know. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Uh, yeah, Joe, um, uh, you were responding to this fact kind of thing as well. So what was, what's your response about the no body images under the blood stains? And then mm -hmm. we can transition to the main topic for today. Yeah, I was just going to make a general point that um, a lot of this could needs to be resolved through through new testing, and uh, I think all of us would agree that um, we we just have to get some new people in there, and possibly some of the old people, although some of the old people are, might have to come in wheelchairs and canes now. Um, but we need new testing, and it just it personally it just it kind of infuriates me that the Catholic Church um, kind of sits on this. I think they're probably happy to keep it a mystery, but this is, I think it's too important of an object to, for them to be sitting on, sitting on it. I, I believe the shroud belongs to the world and they, they owe it to the world to, um, especially after they, they screwed up a few times along the way. Uh, they could help rectify that situation by allowing more testing, but that probably won't happen while Pope Francis is around, but we can always hope for the future. 
Awesome. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, with that said, that's that's the facts established and you've heard uh, where where the experts agree or disagree on a, a few of them and that sort of thing. But here's here's one that we definitely disagree on. And it's the fact that there was no paints, pigments or dyes found on this as per Walter McCrone's traditional painting hypothesis. So uh, I'm going to go back to our traditional format where each guest panelist gets their opening statement for 10 minutes or so, whatever they want to do. And then we're going to go to informal discussion. So for this round, Joe, uh, you get the first word, first opening statement on Walter McCrone and his painting hypothesis. What do you think of it? Okay. Well, I think we have to look at um, McCrone's personality. Um, I think that enter, enters into it. Um, I met him at a conference. I corresponded with him quite a bit while I was in the, the monastery back in the old days. Um, and I've heard some stories told to me by some STIRP members. Now I'm going to relate some of those. Obviously those are not things, you know, if we were in a court of law uh, that I would say that this is evidence, but the, the, the sources are, are unimpeachable, reliable. I believe them 100%. Oh, chronological order as I, as I like to do with these things. Um, I, I was given access to um, some correspondence between Sterp and Macron uh, in, in, in the Holy Shroud Guild archives. And it, it's pretty interesting. I'm going to read later excerpts from, from three of those letters. And I think those sorts of letters are really valuable because, you know, when you, when you read letters like that, the authors kind of know or, or think at least at the time that, that it's, that it's not going to be seen by the public. So you can often get good information from these letters that you don't even get in, you know, formal peer reviewed articles because they're writing for an audience. Whereas letters will give you information, um, kind of inside information as it were, that can be extremely valuable. So, um, all right, well, I'm going to tell some um, stories, anecdotes that STIRP members gave me. Now, a couple of the members, I, di I didn't, I, I think they're on the private side and they don't, wouldn't want me to use their name. So, um, again, that takes probably chops off another little credibility for some people. But um, Barry Schwartz, however, did did tell me a story and he, he said I could use his name. and. Um, that's the first one, which is Barry told me uh, multiple times um, that after Macron died, an associate of Macron's called Barry just to relate a story to him. And, and right up front, Barry didn't remember his name. Um, but, you know, if Barry tells you something, you can take it to the bank. I guarantee you, I've known Barry for 30, 40 years. The man is pure integrity. And if he tells you something, it's true. Um, he said an associate. He says, uh, oh, I'm sorry. sorry. You froze up there for a second. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, and he wanted to just let Barry know about a, a conversation that he had had with Macron. And the associate told Barry that he asked Macron directly why he kept saying it was a painting 
when Stirp proved it wasn't. That's that was the guy's words. And Macrone, he said Macrone said to him, I know damn well it's not a painting, but the press refers to me by name, but to them as the Stirp team. That speaks volumes to me. I, I think that tells you that it was all about name recognition and, and publicity for him. I think I personally think that if Stirp had come up with evidence saying that the shroud was a fake, I believe, and of course I don't have proof of this, I think Macron would have found evidence um, that it was authentic just to be the, you know, to get the, the best name recognition. Um, and then shortly before Ray Rogers died in 2005, he was asked to give a talk to the American Chemical Society, which had a lot of people that uh, associates of Macron and whatnot. And Ray was too sick to, uh, to attend. So he had Barry give a talk. And Barry said that the people, uh, the people in attendance there were shocked to learn that Macron actually hadn't gone to Turin. Um, now, he, you know, I think if, if Macron was forthright and, and straightforward, he would have made that clear, but he didn't. But I think it served his purposes to let people think that he was in Turin to enhance his credibility. So that's an, another little story. And then uh, incidentally, um, Macron's articles, all of which I think except two, were in his own journal, The Microscope, which was not peer-reviewed. I mean, he, he had the final say of what got in there. So if you put your own articles in a journal, that's not much about peer review. Um, he, um, he, he, the website took down Macron's articles on paintings, on, his, on the painting hypothesis. And I actually checked the site last night and there are no articles that are, I think there's, there was reference to his book and he had one, um, article in a peer-reviewed journal called Accounts of Chemical Research. And I found one other reference to a, a German publication, and I'm not even sure that was uh, peer-reviewed. But I think the, the fact that the articles were taken down from the website kind of shows an acknowledgement uh, by Macron's own people that the, the, the you know, strength of his articles weren't that strong. Um, and I, uh, there, there's a wonderful article um, in the Rolling Stone from 1978 um, that, that talked about Stirp's interaction with Macron. Now this, it was the December 28th, 78 and the January 11th, 1979 issue. And the author says, um, Sturp was already suspecting that his interest in the shroud was not, quote, scientifically selfless. Uh, it also said there are grave doubts. So there was suspicion, of, you know, early on that, that Sturp was in it for, for not the right reasons. Um, now, another Sturp member, 
whose credibility I trust as well, told me on the phone recently that um, the FBI used to use Macron for various things. And he said the the FBI stopped using Macron because of various sensationalist claims um, that they had, that he was making, but he didn't, the STIRP team didn't learn about that later. And in the, the STIRP member told me, he says he, he wishes they knew about it at the time that the FBI had stopped using them. Um, the same STIRP member told me a, a story several times that Macron was, was lent by NASA moon rocks. And Macron was supposed to study them and then return return the rocks to NASA. Well, apparently, Macron admitted to the STIRP member that he substituted regular rocks to NASA when he was supposed to return the moon rocks. Some, you know, some people come do misdeeds and kind of uh, revel in in a, admitting it, and, and Macron seemed to be one of those people. And he also told a different STIRP member an interesting story. And I heard this member tell me the story several times. It's a story about two guys that had a, a duel with swords. And the first person, you know, they're dueling, and the first person swishes and stuff, and the second guy goes, Today is not my day for technical difficulties. We missed oh, the punchline there. We missed it. You froze. Sorry. Okay. So. All right. So the, they, the first guy swishes at the second guy, and um, the second guy says, you missed me. Yeah. And the first guy says, oh, yeah? Turn your head. Meaning, <laughs> you know, I, I can, I can uh, get you without you barely knowing it. You know, Macron, it, he just admitted that. I mean, that that story to me tells volumes. Okay, now I'm going to go to something a little more concrete. This is, um, I'm going to put the thing in front of the camera here. You can see the Star Shroud of Turin Research Project, Inc. Uh, letterhead. Yeah. And this is and a letter... And Joe, just so you know, if, if you have anything you want to share on your screen, we can set that up too. So, okay. Um, well, the, let's see. The, this first letter is three, about four pages long. I'm just going to read a couple excerpts from this one. This is from a STERP member to Macron, April 10th, 1980. When, okay, so a couple of the papers that Macron ended up putting in his uh, own journal, he had first submitted to STIRP to try to get um, it okayed, I guess for other journals or whatever. Um, and the STIRP members said, there's two excerpts from here. The STIRP member says to him, contrary to your apparent belief, you are a part of a team, microscopic, observations do not exist in a vacuum. The very tone of your papers present your work as the last and only word on possible hypothesis of how the image on the shroud was formed. Therefore, your paper does not comply with the content requirements spelled out in the 
August 1st, 1979 newsletter. And then he says, he's talking about a table in one of the papers and, and the STIRP member says, first, your table one does not present your data in a truthful manner. And then toward the end of this letter, he says, in short, your data is misrepresented, misrepresented, your observations are highly questionable, and your conclusions are pontifications rather than scientific logic. I cannot permit this paper to carry the Shroud of Turin Research Project's seal of approval. Okay, so then, um, then another letter from this STIRP member followed um, April 22nd of 1980, which is 12 days after this first letter. And Macron, this is in reply to a, a letter that Macron sent after this first letter from STIRP. And in this, this next one is about five pages, including a chart. I'm sorry. Okay. Let me back up a minute. Um, this April 22nd letter is actually from Macron to the STIRP member. I apologize. So 10 days after the, the first letter that I read, Macron wrote back. And at the end of his letter, Macron says to him, I am not used to receiving letters like your last one. And I found that it made me literally sick to my stomach and caused me to miss a couple of nights sleep. Now, here's a guy who, who, you know, should expect some criticism about his work. And he's saying it made him sick and he lost sleep. <clears throat> he seems just obsessed with his, his ego and reputation here. So then a few months later, the STIRP member writes back to Macron. This is in November, November 10th, 1980, about six months um, after the, the two letters I just read. And toward the end of the, this two-page letter, the STIRP member says, I believe you are not being objective about re carefully re-examining your hypothesis. Remember, you yourself have admitted that it was fortunate that the group as a whole did not seem overly impressed with your first, with your first hypothesis, finger painting. I think the fact that everyone on the team other than yourself categorically rejects your hypothesis should suggest something to you. Um, and then um, on September 11th, 1980, Macron went over to England and gave a talk to the British Society of the Turn Shroud. And uh, this is a quote from Cullen Murphy's uh, Harper's November 1981 article. And he told the uh, British Society newsletter audience, quote, I believe the shroud is a fake, but I cannot prove it. Okay. Um, So then, and then another story that probably sick, that Hugh is probably sick of hearing because I've mentioned it on a forum we're on together for many years, but at the conference that it, where I met Macron in 1986, uh, in the question and answer session, 
I asked him how his supposed artist was able to incorporate details that wouldn't even be known for several centuries more after after it was supposedly forged. I said, how how would how does your supposed forger how is he able to do that? And his answer, and I think I got this word for word, and that was forty something years ago. He said, "I'm not going to answer that. He just did it." Now I'm sorry that that's not a good scientific answer to a, a legitimate question. So, um, you know, my take on him is that that he wasn't he wasn't as interested in finding the truth as he was about stroking his own ego. So I, I you know, based on everything that that um, Sturp found about no paints, pigments, dyes. Um, I, I think you can just discount Macron's find painting hypothesis. All right, thank you so much. So, yeah, uh, before we lose him, I want to turn straight to uh, Mark, not Mary. Uh, Richard was a little confused there. Uh, it's Mark, oh, and we lost him. Great, oh. perfect timing. Uh, is, <sighs> Mark, are you still there? Or? So just so you... I I can I can hear you now. I could see you a little while ago, but I couldn't hear you. Now I can hear you, but I can't see you. Well, the um, voice is the important thing. It, it's yeah. probably better. <laughs> okay, great. Well, so, Mark, case, yeah. Go, okay. go ahead and give um, your, your case against the Walter McCrone's painting hypothesis there. Well, there's, I mean, yes, there is vermilion, and yes, there's iron oxide on the shroud. But to say that this accounts for the image is silly. There's insects and rodent hair and, and all kinds of things that have gathered, but they don't have any correlation with the image. And, and it, ironically, there's a little bit of correlation with blood, with iron, with iron which is in blood. And, and he, 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 the iron oxide that he finds that's all over the cloth has nothing to do with the image. It's it's a result of the reading process. And they're just tiny amounts, none of which could comprise an image. And and you would need to have enough that comprises it, uh, that it, it's comprised of enough that you can see it in visible light, because that's what we've done. We've used our eyes in visible light over the years. And and but they can't even find these things down to the tiniest of fractions. They, they don't find gelatin that would bind it. And all his work was, um, it, it, he misses the forest for the tree over and over again. And, and he does perform the wrong test for protein. Uh, he finds birefringence. Bi but he doesn't realize it's coming from the mylar tape. He 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 just flat out missed the existence of blood, um, and and blood and and um, pigment uh, uh, have have some things in common. And uh, he just looked for for one thing, but he, he does he didn't even recognize that the image is comprised. Of degraded cellulose, um, and it's he makes no attempt to explain how 
vermilion or paint could form degraded cellulose, let alone form it all over the image in, in a three-dimensional, with a three-dimensional distribution and a uniform distribution uh, or a generally uniform distribution and, and does it enough so that you can see it with the visible eye, that, that you can contrast um, contrast it with the background. Um, it, there's no sign of gelatin anywhere and no sign of proteins that, that would be within the gelatin. Um, he, uh, all these things were, were simply, and, and he just ignores all the other tests. Um, and, and, and the funny thing about it is when he made his announcement that the, that the, um, the shroud was composed of, of paint, not only the blood marks, but the body image um, or, or the gelatin binder. He, he had only looked through a microscope. Um, when he gets together with Adler and things like that, he does start to perform some of the other tests. And then he goes quiet. Um, you don't hear much about him anymore and his, um, and his painting hypothesis. Um, I, I, that's it in a, in a, in a summation. I don't, you know, and, and this is all separate from the actual chemical test that Sturt did. And we're talking about thousands of those. Um, uh, in addition to all the x-ray fluorescence and radiographs and things of those natures. Um, he, 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 he's very controversial at best. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mark. And uh, yeah, turning last but not least, the infamous Shroud skeptic, Hugh Ferry, is going to give his case. And it's just interesting to point out because believe, even though Hugh's a Shroud skeptic, he doesn't agree with the traditional painting hypothesis. So yeah, Hugh, I, I'm interested to hear your take. Um, what's your take on Walter Macron's painting hypothesis? Um, well, I've got, I've got one or two um things I, I i have to say that i agree that there was bad blood uh between some members of sturt and walter mccrone and um i think they were quite rude to each other and i i regret that terribly because he made some observations uh which were simply denied i think at one point eric jumper said he couldn't see any orange dots on the shroud at all, um, which just didn't seem to make any sense. Um, I'm going to share the screen again, if I may. Um, now I've got bits, <laughs> I've got different uh, things over here. We go. Right. Can I just have a look at this? Present, share screen, share screen. <laughs> I'm getting the hang of this now. Um, ah, entire screen. Let's go for that. Oh, we're going through all this uh, thing. Can you see that? Is that is that all of you? Right. Can we see no. this? No? Not yet. Nothing's nothing's popping up in the queue. So did is you click? Anything, is there anything at all there? Did you I'm, when I'm the, sharing my, yeah, sharing my entire screen? Did you click on the image, the there. box? 
Oh, no. Image, share. There it is. Can you see? There we go. Yep. Uh, 1DB heal. That's, that's, that's it. Now, this is just um, all the times 40 slides from um, Macron's book. Uh, and you see that I haven't um, photocopied it very well. I've just slammed it down on my uh, on the on the scanner and scanned. Now we've got lots of red dots all over the place. Now I don't know whether he selected them specially or whether uh, they're typical. Some of them, um, like up on the top right hand side where it says small of back, well we might suppose that that would be a blood area. And then down um, on the third line down, we've got blood belt, which might also be a blood area. Uh, but on just to the uh, left of it is finger, uh, which is has also got some of these very similar red dots on it. And then down at the foot, the thing's covered in red dots. I mean, there are masses of dots about. And we might say, well, there aren't enough dots to make an image. Um, or... I mean, according to Macron, there were. Now, I actually, I disagree with him. But we can't say there is no iron oxide on the shroud. And there isn't substantial iron oxide on the, on the shroud. Just about every slide that you can find has got dots on it. And a lot of them, if we, I'm going to multiply some of these up now. I'm going to clear that slide and go into this. Oh, did you see that one? No, oh, where have I got to? Come back. I want another. This one. Can you see that? Or have I got to go and click yeah. on something? Yeah. Knit 425. That's right. Now, these are um, Eugenia Nitovsky's photographs. And if um, if I, <laughs> I'm just going to make a wild guess, but you don't have to correct me or not. And that is that um, Barry also sent me a whole bunch of photographs that Fred Zugaby took. Now, he only took them of two slides, I think. But they were, yes, of much better quality. But we can see as we go up and down that these fibers are covered in red dots all the way along. And there are masses and masses of them. Some of them are by Nitovsky. Some of them are by um, Joseph Kolbeck. But to say that there are, this is the, the hand wound, as you can see. I've sort of edited these for my own um, ease of getting hold of them. But to say there are no, there are no particles on the shroud, um, or on on the on the fibers uh, is is uh, observationally incorrect and and I think it, it's um, it's very easy to go through a series of Chinese whispers um, and without actually looking for yourself you can't get back to some kind of basis of what was actually there I mean it's all very well Macron saying the shroud is heaped with the stuff well obviously it isn't and it's all very well for somebody else on Sturp saying there isn't any stuff there at all. You have to go back and look as best you can on, on what there is. You know, here we have hardly any particles, apparently, but if we whack it up to uh, 400, we can see particles. That's this slide, this fiber here where my cursor is jiggling, magnified, and that little area there is here. And quite obviously, this thread had particles on it. Uh, and they are not particles running down the middle. Um, I think um, Adler, uh, Adler especially, tried to think that the, well, hope perhaps, that the particles were only visible in the 
lumens of the of the threads down the middle. But obviously, we can see them all over the place, especially all over the outside. They're all over the sticky tape. They're all over everywhere. The the, the shroud is, is is covered in contamination of, of various kinds. Now, I um, on the whole, I, I actually agree with everybody. I'm going to get rid of that and go back to where. He pressed the close button. Oh. <laughs> so Relog in, so okay. Uh, cool. Well, yeah. Well, I'll turn it to you guys. Um, in the meantime, you you've heard kind of Hugh's case for saying, well, look, the in his mind there is a sufficient amount of this these red. Uh, oh, here's Hugh. I pressed the wrong button. <laughs> no problem. No problem. Right. Stop staring. I've got so been many there, done that. Okay. Oh, I fancy that. So I mean, the it's um. I don't think it's not a question of insisting, yes, it is or no, it isn't. It's a question of looking and saying, what can you actually see? And is this true or not? I've got, incidentally, uh, page uh, 78 of his book, where he says, um, Lucy and I left Turin the day after the Shroud exhibition and scientific meeting. And on the day after, and on the day the Sturp team started five full days of round-the-clock tests. So Macron was in Turin, according to his um, book, um, just for, for the exhibition and did see the shroud. And I don't know that there's anybody uh, who thinks that's untrue. Um, is, that, is, that, is that false? Is he lying when he says he was in Turin and left it after there was a small meeting before um, the Sturp uh, team began their, their work, possibly while all their equipment was embargoed, and I think Peter Rinaldi was there and probably one or two others. Um, I think somebody else who, who has said that Sturp, possibly even Harry Gove, has said that um, Sturp was, oh, no, report on the shroud. Hello, might say. But Sturp was actually, he was in Turin. He did see the shroud, but only as, as a tourist. He didn't um, study it close up. But it, yeah, it's I have easy no to make problem mistakes. with that. Yeah. I mean, well, um, but he, so he didn't, you know. It. Now, he didn't see it up close, though. He no, didn't examine it directly, of course. No, yeah. no, no, no. I'll go with that. Yeah. Um, in, I think, his first paper, because I did read his papers as they came out, and then, as Joe said, they all disappeared in favour of just his last paper, which is the one which was peer-reviewed and published in uh, Accounts of Chemical Research, I think, something like that. Mm -hmm. And in his first paper, I think he came up with the pronouncement that if the iron oxide particles were all removed, there'd be no image on the shroud at all, um, which I think was wrong. And later on, he decided he thought it was wrong as well. And later, uh, I think his second or third paper, he says that he now thinks that the blood was entirely made of red particles, which again, I think he was mistaken, uh, but that the image he now thinks was mostly yellow and was due to the yellowing effect of a gelatin medium, um, which he tested to see whether it was um, collagen gelatin or egg gelatin, the two different kinds of tempera, uh, both still used by people who paint in tempera. Um, anyway, so uh, th these experiments, there, his photographs of them, I mean, he photographs uh, an area stained blue with amido black and it's not um it's not the linen of the of the fibers it's a great lump of blue stuff stuck to them so th there is protein of some kind 
um, apparently, uh, if his photograph is not a photograph of something completely different. Uh, and again, we need to explain what it is. Um, and I don't really know. Uh, I really, I was going along with um, Joe Assetta's plan. I think I've got it here, which I've been experimenting with, which is that it was made of this stuff. This is uh, Joe's idea is that it was made of um, oak gall ink. And this is uh, vinegar uh, with uh, with iron filings dissolved in it to produce iron acetate, which is a which is a wood stain frequently used. Uh, and again, it will stain uh, cellulose without uh, becoming particulate. In other words, it actually makes a color. You can't see little dots on it. Um, so will so I the middle black. Sorry, the middle black. The middle black will stain oxidized cellulose. Uh, not if you uh, wash it off with vinegar, it won't. Um, I've got the instructions for amido black staining here, which explains that you have to uh, acidify it or basically wash it with vinegar, vinegar uh, in order to make the test for protein exclusive to protein. And uh, Macron explains that in his book. But... Um, Heller and Adler said that they stained their threads with amido black and, and yes, found that the linen all went, went um, it's this dark blue colour. Um, but it's not apparent that they tried to wash it with vinegar afterwards, which would have neutralised the stain on the cellulose, but not the stain on the protein. But the, the, uh, that may be. I don't know about the washing... Uh, but there's just a ton of tests. Yeah, but you've got to read the read the you know the instructions as to how to use it. But there, um, I mean, but there's a ton of other tests for for protein that were performed that that Macron did not, and they couldn't find it at the smallest levels, let alone enough to form an image. Um, yeah, yeah. I wish I could talk to them and see their results and try it out myself. Yeah. But you, but so Hugh, you, you are acknowledging these uh, other tests that were done that failed to find this because then you do have a contradiction on your hand. Like, how, um, well, not really. Uh, they were protease experiments, as far as I remember, whose job was, was to remove protein if it was there. Um, but it doesn't actually tell you whether, you know, having removed it, you can't tell whether it was there or not, if you see what I mean. Um, I'd have to check the experiments more closely uh, to find out. But I think that they were mostly proteolytic experiments, as far as I can remember. Fair enough. Okay. Any, okay, uh, cool. So, yeah, at this point, we will open it up to, to informal dialogue and that sort of thing. So, um yeah i guess joe um did you have anything you wanted to um i would just say i think i think barry made a comment to me recently a kind of a general one that um you know any argument that says something was on there and it disappeared so you can't see it anymore i think he was said words to the effect that they would have been able to uh discern it so he disagrees with 
with that sort of argumentation. Um, and one other thing I wanted to mention in, in, in terms of my original presentation was I was going to mention that uh, our friend Teddy Pappas is writing a, a book about the blood on the shroud. And um, she's devoting quite a bit to Macron's painting hypothesis. And um, she actually let me see a draft of some of the material on Macron. And she went through his book quite studiously and has compiled um, a list of various contradictions um, in Macron's own writing. So, um, of course, I'm not going to say any of those now or anything. People can read it in the book next year when well, it comes out it. or whenever it comes out. Poor yeah. Teddy, I'm not. I'm not sure she'll ever get a, a book done because she, <laughs> she she examines yeah. each detail well, so uh, studiously she, that she never gets. Yeah, done. I tried to get her on this show, and she, so she will be on the show when whenever her book finally comes out, Volume One, and she'll be mm -hmm. debating you. I'm I'm sure she's revved up. Well, um, uh, uh, oh, I, I, yes, uh, obviously. Um, Macron kept changing his mind. Um, that's fairly obvious just by reading his papers. So he decided the blood was all red, and then he decided it was part, it was more yellow. Um, but she, wildly following a, a suggestion of mine, um, got a puddle of blood, a, a puddle of wine. Did you see that? Uh, she got a puddle of wine and wait till it dried, oh. stabbed it with a with a with a with a cloth. Oh yeah, ripped it out, put it under her microscope. Yeah. Uh, and produced something that was A, uh, entirely superficial, B, of only one color, C, which didn't go through to the back. I mean, it was an, I couldn't have done it better myself. She, <laughs> and well, then it wasn't, uh, super, it wasn't proven to be superficial. That, well, anyways, I'm not supposed it's to be really it. superficial. <laughs> Maybe at a fabric level, but I thought I, it was marvelous. Well, you, we didn't see her fibers closely enough to see. But I, I don't. There's no particular reason why wine should soak into um, a plant cell. Anyway, I mean, I, I think that's the all the superficiality business is a massive red herring. Everything is superficial. <laughs> okay. Well, well, with that brought up, then let let me ask this then. So, outside of the composition of the stains, with respect to the other minimal relevant features like superficiality. Uh, the three-dimensional images, the vertically mapped wrapping distortions, all the all these other things, negativity. Uh, how do you guys uh, do? You guys want to have a discussion? How does the painting hypothesis fail uh, fair in terms of explaining these features? First of all, uh, Mark, I'll start with you. Um, what's what? I, I don't understand Macron's explanation for the degraded or for the oxidized cellulose is he claiming that the paint was on and then it was removed and there's just little particles left but it was it was removed in such a way to have made oxidized cellulose um is is that what um the latest position is in regard to uh paint uh, well, I can't speak for Macron, and it's not obvious. Uh, I think from his book, he, he finally settled into his original idea that it was all made of iron oxide. I can't remember it offhand. Um, uh, in my view, the shroud was washed, um, and all the paint came off, or nearly all the paint came off, uh, leaving only the medium in which the paint originally was. Or indeed, uh, the iron oxide could have simply been left over from the iron 
that was used to make the dye, um, the oak, the gall, the ink, if you like, um, that, that, that the, shroud, the shroud is ultimately stained with. I don't think that the image that we see now is the same as the image that it was when it was first produced. Well, I don't know. Whether, I mean, Macron might disagree with me. I don't know. There's iron, calcium, and strontium all over the shroud, the image and the non-image. And that is from uh, the reading process. Um, How do you know? Um, that's, that's very clear in Heller and Adler's works. Um, how did they know? Well, they had image. Well, they had they had readings, and I'm not sure what it is. X-ray fluorescence, spectro, photometric, and all that stuff of the entire cloth, and then they they would take tiny fibers. Um, they would they would try to take them from borders where you have like off image, image, or off image and water stain or scorch and blood and those kinds of things they would try to take uh, as few as fibers and the way they would do this would be taking them at margins where you could get two or three different things to study on a fiber a uh, separate and apart from the cloth uh, being analyzed as a whole uh, the the tiny fibers are more for chemical tests but they they state very clearly in their works that iron strontium and calcium is all over the shroud from the reading process yeah it's in table one of the morris schwalb and london's um x-ray fluorescence paper uh which was in x-ray spectrometry and we've got a list that it wasn't from all over the shroud there was a lot from a, a little line from the nose outwards to the side past the hairline and another line from the heel outwards and we have a, a a massive list yes of all the calcium readings from number one to 23 and the iron readings and the strontium readings now um so, somewhat mathematical here but if you add up all the calcium and you find the average of the calcium and the average of the iron and the average of the strontium you get an average value and if you then find uh the standard deviation which is how far away most of the values, uh, most, of, most of the individual values are from the average value. Uh, we get a very small variation in the calcium and the strontium and something like a 30% variation in the iron. In other words, the iron varies a lot in intensity from one part of the shroud to the other. It's not uniform and that their findings very clearly show that it's not uniform. Now, the question is, is it uh, related to, um, to, to the density of the image or not? Well, half of their readings were taken off image anyway, so it's impossible to tell. But the uh, series of, of um, readings across the nose, uh, out to the hair, uh, are, in my opinion, match the intensity of the image sufficiently well for the idea that they don't match, not to be reject, not not to be supportable. In other words, where the nose is dark, the iron image, the iron reading is high, and then by the side of the nose, the image is light, and the iron reading is low. 
and then next to that is the cheek where the iron image is the image is a little bit darker and the iron is a little bit uh higher and then there's a gap between the uh between the cheek and the hair where the both the image and the iron content is low and and so on so there, there's a sort of range of hills in the graph which matches to my mind very well and which i might be able to <laughs> find for you if you like that's a very narrow spectrum i remember that photograph in their paper it's a very very narrow one you've you've got oh Gosh, if you count the frontal and dorsal image, you've, you've got a, a five foot nine or 10 uh, individual um, and, uh, height, and then another, what, foot or so, two feet maybe, of width. Um, you, you've got a very narrow spectrum here from the, it sounds like from the nose to the hair, and the hair yeah. would be less naturally. Um, I, I I think you've got a long way to go, and it's sort of like um, Macron just looking through a microscope um, and missing the whole big picture. Uh, sort of the forest for the missing the forest for the trees again. I, I uh, and and Heller and Adler, I think. I mean, I don't think their their analysis. Morris was probably just trying to indicate a point. I don't. I don't have that article in front of me right now, but um, uh, they state it's it's all over the shop, not you know, not just in this one little spectrum. Um, well, they didn't know. I mean, if if you only take eighteen samples, you don't know whether it's all over the shroud or not. And that radiography, if I recall, is for mostly heavier elements. Um, uh, I think, what, what was it, above 18 or something? 16, I think. 16? Yeah. 16. And um, and one thing uh, one thing I'll, I'll like to add, Hugh, if you want to include this, because you asked Mark, uh, how do we associate this with the reading process? What, from my understanding, STIRP did actual comparison tests. Um, where's my slide? That, and yeah, they, they, found, that. <clears throat> uh, they found that uh, linens from ancient to modern times created using this writing process had similar levels. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, if you want to respond to that as well, but I'll bring up your, your picture can you here. See my, can you see my medieval shroud thing? Uh, yep, it's a blue line uh, graph. That's it, that's perfect. Uh, here, this is, you can see where, how I've done it. Um, nine, nine to 18 and 19 are the points along. I mean, because I've uh, enhanced it a lot, you can't see, but nine, is just to one side of the nose, and then the number ten would be bang on the middle of the nose, and so on. Now the um, the grey patch inside the blue rectangle is from Mark Rivera's latest um, extract of the image, and the grey line underneath it, the range of hills underneath it, is um, the intensity profile um worked out by image j and then the blue dots underneath it are the um iron oxide uh, the iron content according to uh maurice schwalben london 
And you can see that they go up and then they go down and then they go up, then they go down a bit. And you might say that the last dot on the line where they've got a reading of 16.5, but Mark Rivera's picture is almost flat. Well, that's because 18, as you can see, is just about on the edge of a bloodstain and Mark's own picture removes the bloodstain. So you'd expect his to be flat and theirs to be high. And then point number 19 out on the right-hand side is well away from the image. And so the blood level, the iron level is very low. So, you know, these things, I'm not making them up. They, they, they actually exist as a correlation, um, which is why I was working on that. Um, so why do you think we can see the body image? Uh, what, do, what, what caused us to see it with our eye? What, what does it uh, consist of? I think it's, it consists of a stain now. It is the stain remaining after the paint's washed away. So it's a bit like if you just got, I don't know, a, a, a child who was scribbling all over a handkerchief and then you washed it thoroughly and a bit of it would be left behind even after the hanky had been washed. And that might be due to residual pigment, but in the case of the shroud, I don't think it is due to residual pigment. I think it's due to the stain that the pigment was in. And you think you would still get the, the clear resolution on the negative that we see? Yes. Relatively yes. clear. Well, yeah. Yeah. I, I'd be surprised. If, I mean, if, if to use your, your, your example, the, if a child scribbles on a, a handkerchief, it's going to be a lot clearer than what's left. Oh yeah, no, you then wash yeah. the handkerchief. I mean, you know, you 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 go yeah, wash. Yeah, but the, I mean, yeah. but but then if you take a picture of the of the handkerchief on and look at the negative, it's not going to be as clear as what it looked like after it was washed off. You see what I'm saying? Uh, I, I think I think if the if the um, if the medium that it was in stained the stained the um, fiber the the cloth, then it then it might do. Remember um, Gala Shelley's pick, uh, attempt um, where he painted the shroud or uh, no, he painted his cloth with blue paint. I think that was important um, because he then washed all the blue paint off. But he was still left with quite a good image. And that was the he was using paint in a slightly acidic medium and um, iron acetate being composed out of vinegar to, to make it work at all uh, is certainly slightly acidic. It should also be mentioned that Garlicelli used one of Barry's high resolution photographs to make his own model, which oh, begs yeah. the question, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what did the original forger use as a model? If only I knew. That's what I've been looking for it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, okay. So, I guess, yeah, so Hugh, um, Mark mentioned something that is indeed interesting. I think you're kind of hinting at what your answer is. Look, there, there were dozens of spectral tests, you know, thermography, infrared, X-ray, uh, X-radiographs, X-ray fluorescence, which I think was the most important one. And we're not detecting the these paints or pigments through these spectral tests aimed at the cloth itself. So... 
are you're trying to explain that away yeah that's because there is no paints on the shroud uh yeah. it they it was washed off so you're kind of different different than Walter Macrone and all that's left is the yeah. staining from the the binder that's what you're thinking is correct yeah um one of my uh blog posts is called FTIR um and the shroud and it goes through uh every spectrum that anybody ever found <laughs> um and analyzes them pretty thoroughly um it does query uh some things quite seriously um but i i recommend that people try it out i i do think i mean it sounds a bit cruel but um alan adler took dozens of spectra i say i think he took 30 or did he take five five different spectra from five different kinds of thing um and then he he for one of his papers he picked out a non-image image spectrum an image spectrum and maybe a patch spectrum or something like that and showed that they were quite different but if you look at all his spectra as a group he picked out ones which made them very different the within spectra the the, the within um group variation is much greater than the between group variation it's it's really almost impossible to tell um the difference between the image and the backing cloth for example um if you uh if you if you pick the right one so i'm i'm, I'm not terribly happy with the um with the spectra uh also we've got i've, I've no idea whether robert Villarreal was Italian and should be called Roberto or whether he was just called Bob. The trouble with you Americans is that mm. you've all got names from around the world which you Americanize. So it's it's difficult to be I've, I've heard it as Bob. Bob. So yeah, I think it's yeah, Bob. Right, yeah, Bob. I think it's Spanish. Well, should should we be calling Joe Giuseppe or mm. um <laughs> or Mark Marco? <laughs> like yeah. Well, I don't know, Hugh. I I don't know if you've ever heard this, but Emanuela, you know, pronounced your name as Huga. I think I think Teddy mentioned that to you, possibly. Well, Hugo, yes, yes, Huga. Oh, Huga. Anyway, good to say, a good anglophone name. There you um, go. Yeah. Okay, so, so Joe, anyway, so looking, looking at all these spectra, I'm afraid they're not anything like as conclusive as um, is sometimes supposed them to be. Okay, uh, yeah, jo Joe uh, or Mark, do, do you guys have anything, any last things to say about the spectral tests and their significance? And then I'm going to move on to the next question I have. Have a look at FTIR and the shroud on, on medieval shroud if you're if you're interested in analyzing graphs. <laughs> uh, Joe, do you have anything to say about the spectral I, tests? I don't. I don't. Mark? Um, I think, I mean, I've been advocating testing the shroud at the atomic and molecular levels. This would give you another much closer look at the entire, um, not only the entire cloth, but the fibers and, and what they're all com comprised of. And it would give a deeper look and into the molecular structure for stains or anything else. 
Now, there would be a lot of data, and it would take them years to correlate it, but um, these spectra are designed to, to, to draw out, you know, different spectra are used for different purposes when you're looking for, you know, proteins or, or, or the proteins within gelatin and, and things like that. Yeah. And, and, and you, it, the, the variety of it is, is on purpose. Um, I think the accumulation of them all does mean a lot. Um, I, I think something like, uh, I, I just don't think if the shroud was ever a painting and, and it all got washed off, um, that, then uh, I, no one would have ever, I mean, if, if you say that the painting was, you know, in, in 1356 or 1389 um, and then it's completely different and washed off somebody should have noticed that that gee the 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 shroud's completely different now it was painted but now it's it it you can hardly see it you can hardly make it out uh if mm. there was such a drastic change um th there was there's just no record of this uh, no, that's true. <clears throat> On the other hand, there are accounts, the the early accounts of those people who saw it were amazed at um, how clear it was and didn't mention nowadays if anybody says, oh, let's look at the shroud. Well, unless you know what you're looking for, it's almost impossible to see. Whereas uh, the early accounts of it are all about how clear and obvious it was. So, I mean, I've Teddy's been querying that because it doesn't actually say it was brightly shining, but um, they don't mention that it's faint or anything like that. They, it's all about how clear it is. So it does seem to have changed um, somewhere along the line. And, uh, of course, I, I do think it was almost certainly washed after the fire of 1534 and 1532. And the reason I, one of the reasons I think that is because I got a folded cloth at one point, which I wrote up in the um, British Society newsletter and got a local blacksmith to heat up a lump of iron to a thousand degrees Celsius uh, and then drop it on the cloth. And the amount of charring and bits of stuff that ended up all over it uh, meant that it was extremely grubby indeed. And I had to wash it uh, just to make it uh, unfoldable without getting black all over your hands. And I think the shroud was probably like that. So I think that was probably a contributory factor, uh, which may have been one of the reasons why, having patched it up, they had to get 15 bishops to come and swear that it was the real thing. Um, okay. As, All right. Well, I, I want to switch gears here because here, here's going to be something where we're all three of us or all three of you guys are going to agree, and myself included, but I'm the host. But um, it's the fact that, look, Macron was absolutely out to lunch and wrong. There is blood on the, the bloodstains do are is blood. Now Hugh may have a bit of nuance where he thinks there's blood and paint. I, so Hugh, I, I want to hear your take on the the blood stains. What what exactly is your view? Is, is yeah. there blood and paint? What, what do my you my my? I mean, sometimes you come to a decision and you're pretty clear. All the evidence is mostly on this side and hardly any on the other side. In the case of the blood, I, I think the evidence is is finely balanced, but um, I prepare to argue with 
fellow medievalists uh, that the blood is actual blood. Yes, I, I, I think there are so many tests for it that although any particular one, you know, you can find Billy Rubin in all sorts of things. Uh, porphyrins are found all over the place and so on. Um, but we've got such a lot that you think, well, you could assemble all the ingredients <laughs> so that you had a fake blood that nevertheless matched all the tests that were done. But really, it would have been easier just to use blood. Um, and also, there's no particular reason why it shouldn't be blood. Um, I, I think I've got very excited by, by Caroline Biner Walkham's description of the, the extraordinary, um, oh, I don't know, masochistic or sadistic almost blood cults uh, of the um, of the Cistercians, especially the, the the South German Cistercian nuns uh, of of the late, um, well, of the of the early uh, late twelfth, thirteenth, thirteenth, fourteenth centuries, and you just think it'd be entirely in keeping for somebody to put real blood um, onto it like that. Hugh, are you aware of any examples of of actual? Uh, Claws that have painted blood on it? No. no, not till the 20th century where various artists have uh, made paint out of blood. And what's your uh, assessment of, of 20th century paint uh, using blood on cloth? Oh, grotesque. Um, but it wasn't Why inspired by religious, by, by religious fervor. How, how does it compare with these 20th century people painting with blood? How does that compare to the bloodstains on the shroud? Out of curiosity, because I've never compared oh, that. Oh, I see. Oh, um, yeah. Com com completely different, really, because they'd mix it all up with other things. I mean, right. there's... Um, who's that chap who, who has now made several casts of his own face? Um, he's a sculptor, and, and it, it's a statue of his face made of his own blood. And um, he's done a lot of experiments like that, uh, uh, which are uh, which he calls art. I'm just <laughs> glad I'm, I didn't go. You know, if I was an artist, I wouldn't have gone along that route myself. Okay, okay, so that's interesting. So, so the shrouds bloodstains are entirely unique compared to other artists painting with blood. Yeah, they um, they, they they look to me as if they were dribbled on. Um, mm. In the way okay. uh, some paintings in uh, votive books and some uh, pictures in monasteries uh, have got blood splashed on all over the place somewhat at random but it's not real blood I mean there's this all paint as far as I don't know there's any other um, object that's got actual blood on it okay and so for you for you just a, uh, just a quick clarification as a yes or no so that there was never a time when paint is also being used to make the the blood at a later uh, to touch up, you know, for example, Giulio Fonte has a notion that yeah. the bloodstains were touched up. Uh, oh, I think, you know, I agree with Giulio. I don't know when or where, but uh, I think that the sort of pinkish color of the blood now um, is not the color of, of um, dried blood. And I don't think it was because of, I don't know, the hemolytic qualities of saponaria. And I don't believe, who is it who's just come up with a wonderful experiment which works? If you prick your finger, and uh, put a drop of blood on two bits of cloth and put one in a bowl of water, the one that's drying out will stay, will go brown, and the one in the water will stay red. 
Oh, it's on SSG. I, yeah, I know. Yeah, but un until you um, dry it out and then it goes brown again. And I think Kelly Kearse did a lot of experiments doing something very like that. Okay. Well, yeah, Joe and, and, and Mark. Oh, sorry. Um, so did, uh, Paolo Di Lazzaro did something similar, I think, hmm. um, and tried to make it, if you irradiated it with ultraviolet, it stayed red for a bit and then it went black like everything else. Okay, yeah. Uh, Joe, I'll turn to you first. Like, what's your take on the bloodstains? And I guess the controversial bit is, is there any evidence that maybe some of them have been touched up with paint later on, even if painted in blood originally? Or I, I guess that's a possibility. Um, I think what I'm, one of the things that impresses me, although I would have thought some of the, if that had happened, some of the forensic people that looked at it, pictures and directly at Buckland and Zugaby would have uh, said something about that. And I don't remember them ever saying about that, but I, um, you know, from what I've, there's been dozens and dozens of uh, uh, medical people, surgeons and doctors that, that believe not only is the image physically, uh, physiologically and anatomically correct, but that the blood stains are, are accurate and show pre-mortem and post-mortem blood and difference between arterial and venous blood. So I, I just find it, um, you know, impossible to, to, to give, to, to believe that a, a medieval forger um, could accurately depict that to the degree that he could fool 20th and 21st century medical people on it. Yeah. And out of curiosity, before I go to Mark for his take, uh, what's your take on the, the redness of the blood? Do you, do you have an opinion as to why, why is it still red as you mentioned? Um, I, I, um, Paulo, um, irradiated, um, blood on linen with UV light. Um, and no one gives any attention to Goldoni. Goldoni did the same, but after he did that, he also irradiated the blood on linen with neutrons and then um, irradiated it with ultraviolet light. And according to that, he said that stays red and it's a reddish color just like that on the shroud. If you just use UV light, it's too bright, if I recall correctly. And I would like to see some experiments done where blood is irradiated with neutrons and then, you know, consistent with outdoor exhibits and things like that, it is exposed to UV light. I would like to see what the combination is and what it looks like. And I think if you tested those um, at the molecular level, you may see some similarities with the blood uh, on the shroud at the molecular level. And these are non-destructive tests. And uh, a lot of people won't go there. They say, well, that's not science. Um, but it is science, and you're talking about a possibility of something extraordinary occurring um, in a time or century 
before particle radiation was ever known, which would rule out uh, an artistic uh, um, method, and it would certainly rule out a naturalistic method. It would take something extraordinary, um, especially if you asserted that the neutrons came from that dead body. But it is scientific. You're just trying to indicate what occurred, not that you could um, make such an event happen yourself with a corpse. And and Mark, just a follow-up question, because I know Hugh wanted to say something, but just a, a couple follow-up questions for you. So do you, in addition to the extraordinary explanation that you gave as to the shroud's uh, bloodstained redness, uh, what are your thoughts on some of the naturalistic options? Are, are they viable? And also, what's your take on Giulio Fonte's notion of the bloodstains possibly being touched up with paint later on? Um, well, throughout the 20th century, Vignon and Barbet did many experiments with blood on linen. And it's very difficult. Painting with linen or putting blood on linen is quite difficult. And uh, I was a guinea pig. Uh, in Art Lynn's experiments. Art Lynn did a lot of ingenious experiments to try to artificially duplicate the blood stains on the shroud and, and transfer them from a person to, to cloth. And, and it's just, oh, it's just unbelievably difficult. And um, uh, I, I haven't seen it done yet, no. Uh, what was the the um, the last question? Uh, just what what's your notion about uh, Fonte uh, touching oh. up the bloodstains possibly with paint or something? Well, I think he admits in his last article that could not account for the red color uh, on the shroud. And he says uh, it's probably due to the fact that at least 50 paintings have been laid on top of it. He does, uh, toward the end of his paper, talk about the uh, carboxyl-oxygen combination in blood. Um, I'd, I'd, uh, that's interesting. I'd like to see more experiments on it, though. Um, and even he, he talks about Galdoni but in the only, and, and Paolo, but they only talk about the UV rays. Uh, Galdoni's most interesting work was with neutrons and UV combination. Gotcha. Okay, uh, Hugh, you, you were trying to get in there at one point, so something Mark said, so did, go ahead if you, mm. no? Okay. Yeah, no, I'm trying to, oh, I think it was it's probably something about all these doctors who um, look at the shroud and they all say, yes, it's, it's uh, absolutely as true as anything. And then, um, they, they disagree with each other or they change their minds or they try and think of some other reason for why this or that may have happened. Um, uh, in particular, because I've just been sort of working on it, uh, is um, the, the very unrealistic trickles of blood in the hair, which a practicing physician decided weren't in the hair. They were dribbled down the side of the cheeks instead. This is Gilbert Lavoie's idea that the shroud was originally folded or wrapped quite tightly around the face and then zoomed out to a horizontal um, 
a horizontal layer above the body in order to receive the image. Now, whether or not that's a good idea or not, the fact is that he recognized that blood in the hair in those particular trickles was unrealistic. And um, that's not something which other doctors appear to have noticed. And I mean, we have, I've already done, I won't go into it over and over again, but of course, Zugibi sided with Barbe and came up with his version of how Jesus died and where the blood in the wrists was. No, uh, that was at Buckland's sided with Barbe and Zugibi wrote really quite rude things about both of them, uh, saying that they were completely wrong. Um, you know, so the, uh, the each, each doctor finds that the shroud is totally realistic. It's just not the same as what all the other doctors who found the shroud is totally re realistic thought. Which well, is I, I would I would reply to that that yeah you 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 would expect um, different some differences. I mean, if they all agreed one hundred percent on everything, you'd almost get suspicious. But I think the main point, the significance is that they all agree it's authentic, not that mm. that there are differences. So I think I think you have to keep. I, I think they all. I think they all worked from the premise that it was authentic. I mean, they were mostly interested in what the image showed them about a man underneath it, rather than whether it was it, it, it could have been a fake or not. Uh, that that wasn't their uh, their brief. I mean, I don't say that they were fooled by it. They, they, it wasn't. It wasn't part of their investigation. Fair enough. And as I said, um, we're kind of putting on the table for this episode, the anatomical questions, because I'm going to be hopefully in November. Uh, I have an agreement in principle. Dr. Gilbert Lavoie will be coming on, hopefully, to discuss with you those aspects there. But um, OK, so I have yes. a few. One thing that you guys brought up that I don't think we've discussed yet is um, in terms of the composition of the blood, uh, the body images and blood stains and that sort of thing. There's also this issue of the refractive index and the optical observations that Macrone had versus Stirp. Um, did, did you guys kind of want to discuss that? Because I guess you guys would all kind of agree that Macrone was wrong to rule out blood based on the refractive index. Um, yeah, whoever wants to go first. For me, there are just so many... Um different fragments of, of bits and pieces. The refractive index of, of minerals uh, varies a lot according to whether the uh, mineral, how finely powdered the mineral is for a start. Um, I don't think they were able to make any, either side made very good conclusions from it, to be honest. Okay. Uh, yeah, Mark, what are you That's why I've, I've never worked on it because I didn't find it clear enough. What are your thoughts, Mark, on the, the optical properties of the particles? Could we conclude anything on that basis? Or The only thing I'm familiar with on that is that um, Macrone looked at them while they were still on the Mylar tapes. Hmm. And that's where um, Sturp says that's where the bifringence comes from. It, if you just examine it Without being on the tape, you don't find that biofringence. But that's um, that's the only thing I know about that. I I was not aware that anyone had questioned the reflective and fluorescent and optical um, uh, uh, 
reflections and 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 absorptions and things like that and re-reflections into a lower spectrum and things like that that stirp dead i i i don't think anyone has really uh questioned that uh seriously i think they just questioned uh some of the things that that macron did mm -hmm. yeah yeah well okay. i think yeah i think the reason that was because macron was very obstinate and the fact that he only saw iron oxide Whereas Heller and Adler saw some birefringent bits, some non-birefringent bits. They had, you know, they realized that the shroud was covered in particles of all sorts. And they did their best to try and separate them out into um, basically iron oxide pigment, but which they thought uh, was was come from the from um, blood stains which had been heated so much in the fire that they disintegrated uh, into iron oxide. Um, and then uh, iron that they found, or that they considered was what they called chelated, which I think means chemically bonded to the linen, rather as a stain is. Um, and then they decided they'd found a third kind of iron, and I can't offhand remember what it was. Um, but either way, so they had three sorts of iron, as well as the blood, which was also... Uh, refractive in a different way and so on oh uh, well done whose is that i uh, yeah I, I shared my screen just to show this is what uh, stirp found in terms of the various types of particle particulates and stuff so yeah that's what he yeah. was that's, that's the thing where they've got all this thing about the corroded surfaces which is actually in all the things that i've studied not uh, i've not found it able to be distinguished in quite that way um Especially the scorch areas. If you look at the, the scorch marks, they're not corroded at all. They're beautifully clear. Um, the, the fibers, the scorch fibers. Anyway, um, let's yeah. have a look at the birefringent bits. Oh, no, that's oh sorry. You to, 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 no, no, I was only just to re-examine it. I could do it here. Okay. The, the 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 light scorch marks are very similar to the body image. I think the one agent that everyone is overlooking and many people are leery and kind of scared of it with 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 humanistic reasons um is low energy and low penetrating radiation to explain the image and possibly um low energy uh neutrons which is highly penetrating uh to explain the carbon dating. And I think uh, I, I'm going to continue to look in those areas um, uh, to, to research this. I think um, low energy radiation can explain all the outstanding mysteries on the Shroud of Turn. Yeah, well, that's Bob Rucker's hypothesis. Who's? Um, Bob Rucker. Yeah. Yeah. He's very keen on on radiation of various kinds to explain everything. Protons, mm -hmm. um, well, protons yeah. for the for the carbon fourteen and neutrons for the image. I think. Oh, uh, got it the other way. Around. You I got it. Yeah. yeah. New, new, neutrons for the carbon fourteen and protons for the image. Yes. Okay. Are Are you guys done with this table of the particles now? I can't see it. Oh, is it not being? I wasn't sharing it. Oh. It popped up and then it popped off again. Okay. Uh, do, do you need me to put that back on, Hugh? Or 
No, no, it's right. I, as I say, I, I, you know, there's so many particles of various different um, uh, per, per, um, appearance under under um, polarized light that I, I don't think it makes much difference. Okay, fair enough. Then, okay, cool. So, uh, and uh, Joe, did you get a chance to respond to the refractive, uh, the optical properties or anything? Um, no. All I would say is. Based on what I said about Macron at the beginning, I wouldn't believe anything he said about it. <laughs> Sorry. <Yeah. Fair laughs> okay, so so here's something that Joe mentioned in his opening uh, thing. I don't think we've discussed it property, properly yet. Is Okay, let's look at the physical properties. I mean, this just absolutely, in my opinion, destroys, falsifies, to be a scientific uh, terminology there. It falsifies the traditional painting hypothesis. And... Think about this, uh, some medieval uh, painter using a paintbrush created negative images, negative or a quasi-negative image, whatever you want, Hugh, that had topographical properties and also corresponded to these vertically collimated wrapping distortions. Uh, that's just impossible. And, and Sterp, uh, Jackson, Jumper, and Erkline even used uh, experiments with certified forensic artists they gave them the, they cheated. They gave them the anchor points to help them do this. And look, it was just proven human beings don't have the hand-eye brain coordination skills necessary to create these features. And, you know, these are certified forensic artists with cheat codes in, in effect, and they failed. How could this medieval artist get these, as Walter McCrone says, by accident? I, I just can't buy that. So yeah, uh, Joe, I'll start with you first on this round. Like, what do you think about the, do you agree with me? Is is it just impossible? Or do you think maybe by happenstance an artist can get these features? Or Cause certain, uh, I, certain... I, uh, I was just, I think it's virtually impossible for an artist to have uh, in, in the 14th century to be able to incorporate all those details together. Kind of freezing. I mean, bit. I mean, appealing to oh, he just got the quasi-negative by chance. That I mean, to me, that's just that's just really stretching it to say oh, you just happened to get it. I, I based on everything, I've been reading stuff for, for over forty-six years, and I'm just as convinced as I can be that. It, I mean, I, and I wrote an article about how many disciplines an artist would have to be proficient in, and it's about 100. And I just find it impossible to believe that an unnamed, nor, uh, who's come down to us unknown, would have been that talented, and we don't know about him today, that he just disappeared from history. I I, I think the, the Occam's razor here is that you know, and one of the scientists, I forget which one, said it'd be more of a miracle than if if it was a painting than if it was what it's purported to be. And I, I fully support that statement. Yeah. And one thing I, I should just before I go over to Mark for his take, it, um, the reason Walter Macron said, oh, it's, it's just a, a happy happenstance or an accident is because, look, the medieval artists, we know historically that it's, it's a totally implausible and impossible for them to even have in mind these features to purposefully create them, let alone pull it off. So, 
So that's why even Macron says, well, obviously it just happened as a, a byproduct, an accidental thing. But um, Mark, yeah, in, in terms of the, the negativity, the three-dimensionality and the vertical mapping process, do you, what do you think about Macron's notion that, well, these just happened by accident? Um, it would, you know, the old proverbial monkey uh, with a typewriter uh, writing all of Shakespeare's works. It's about the same odds. It would, it would be like a miracle. Um, there was a miracle, according to um, the most, well, it, among the most, probably are of, of all the ancient uh, works of literature, the Gospels are probably the most authenticated. The only trouble is they talk about a miracle, and um, which everyone in their time saw, literally that uh, a dead crucified body came back to life. And um, uh, there's many examples of radiation being involved um, with Jesus and, and Christianity. Um, I, I think that, that a miraculous event um, that has some historical documentation is more likely than a miraculous event where somebody accidentally paints the most unique picture of all and then washes it and then and then it becomes the shroud of turin with all these properties that that were centuries ahead of the minds of of those days and and still can't be duplicated today i i uh but if you geared research toward the occurrence of a miracle instead of trying to perform one yourself, that that is science, and you could do that. And that's why I say you could test the shroud at the atomic and molecular level, and you could test all the hypotheses, all of them. And if you realized that it was irradiated, with 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 particle radiation uh in the form of neutrons protons or whatever uh you'd have to conclude that that was a miracle and and you'd have well you'd have billions of items of evidence all over the body image as well as the rest of the cloth but that that would be scientific you're just saying that one occurred not that you could do it yourself um, I think something like that is the more likely or probable explanation. And we should address that uh, with science. All right, awesome. So Hugh, I'm gonna turn to you. So I know that you, you've got a you've got your own differences with Macron uh, in accounting for some of these features, but what's your take on the traditional thing? If you this afternoon go off with a paintbrush and using a piece of paper, paint, uh, as best you can, as best you remember the shroud as you remember it, you will be astonished at the result. I mean, it is possible to get a quite extraordinarily, you think, my God, did I do it? Is it as good as that? Just by remembering what it was. Now, the problem is, of course, that you know what it is that you're copying, whereas as far as we know, um, no one in the Middle Ages had anything to copy from. So uh, that's why I don't think conceptually a person painting a portrait would have painted an inverse 
picture like that. Um, however, uh, it was right at the beginning of um, woodblock, uh, wood printing and then woodblock printing. It was just arriving in Europe and uh, people were getting quite excited about the fact that you could make an imprint of something and uh, then usually on a piece of paper, I have to say. Um, and, and this was an artistic trend that was coming in. Uh, and so I think that somebody who was setting out to produce something that was um, interesting for people to look at at the end of this quam queritis ceremony that I keep going on about uh, could have had the uh, the idea of a print in mind. So, yes, I don't think an artist painted a negative. Um, I think the, 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 the negative was the um, obvious consequence of the print that he was trying to make. Awesome. Yep. And we'll be evaluating that that form of mechanism in a future panel review when we get to those things. But yeah, great. So we're on the same side in terms of can, Macron. I, can I just add something to, to Mark's idea? I mean, he, he's he's mentioned twice now and his test of shrouding. I mean, uh, it, it may never happen, but it's it's a brilliant idea. But one of the things that I think would be would be very interesting would be the isotopic composition um, of the linen. If possible, exactly. Um, exactly. because because where you can match uh, the isotopic composition of a cloth uh, with uh, the isotopic compositions of other cloths, mm -hmm. and possibly find out where the linen was grown. Yeah, Dinegar uh, and uh, Schwalbe actually did an article on that. Yeah, yeah, that that would be a, a really good idea. Okay. All right, well, I'm going to start with Hugh. Um, my, my last question before I turn it to you guys. Uh, the last remaining couple of minimal relevant features. Uh, so superficiality, uh, how does the traditional painting mechanism uh, explain the superficiality that we see on the shroud, as well as the uniformity that we have? Again, whatever uh, degree you think it's uniform, can the traditional painting account for what we see? Um, Hugh, what's your take on the traditional painting on that front? Uh, very unlikely. I, I, I mean, I, I think um, someone actually painting the painting, they, almost certainly the paint would have gone through and he wouldn't have minded. Whereas laying something down um, on, 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 a, uh, on a substrate, you can quite easily make it sufficiently uh, weak so that it doesn't come through the cloth. So, yeah, I mean, I've not been a, a, a keen, um, I've not been fond on the actual using a paintbrush to produce a painting hypothesis ever, I don't think. What And what about uniformity? Because you, you mentioned that you dispute that it's precisely uniform. You think there are variations. But do you think yeah. that the traditional painting method could account for even the little slight variations that you were trying to point out? Or would it be much worse? Would it, would it fail on uniformity? It, it, it's very difficult to say. Um, can I draw a picture? Sure. I very, I very rarely lecture without a picture. Now, you know, here's a couple of threads. And one idea is that some threads are colored and some threads are not. And the more colored threads there are, the darker the image appears. But I, I think it's it needs greater magnification than that, because I think the threads themselves are slightly patchy 
in their color. And again, each individual bit of color may or may not, I haven't seen them closely enough to say that this bit is the same color as that bit, but it does mean that this thread ends up lighter than this thread, even though the color on it is the same color. Mm -hmm. Can painting do, could painting do that's one way of doing it. Are you talking about the fibers or the threads? Fibers, sorry, fibers, individual fibers. Fibers, uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, and just so I know, so are you, are you saying that the traditional painting method would be able to reproduce this uh, spotty type of uniformity that you're going for? Or? Yes, 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 it would be. Okay. Uh, okay. Provided you used one color. Obviously, if you used, you know, if you had a palette, then you'd produce two colors. Uh, but if you only have one color, you can only produce one color. I mean, that's that's what. Yeah. Uh, that, okay. You know what I meant by uniformity. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mark, what what's your take in terms of superficiality and body image uniformity? How does the traditional painting method uh, do on that? Those features. I don't think it does, but but low energy, low penetrating radiation could easily do it. Okay. All right. Awesome. And yeah, and I promise for you, Mark, we I have a radiation show planned, so I'll have you, Bob Rucker, and, and stuff. We're going to do a panel show on the radiation things as well. Definitely. Okay. okay. Um, all right. Cool. Uh, so that's a total failure. Uh, Joe, what's your take in terms of yeah. the painting hypothesis in these? Yeah, features? I don't. I. I don't think it can be done with a paint with painting. And um, I would also make a peripheral point in, in, in that um, the cloth, the, the shroud is a very expensive cloth. And I think one has to put in the, throughout the question, would a, would a medieval forger use such an expensive cloth to try to fool somebody? Wouldn't you, wouldn't he try to save some money by, <laughs> using the cheapest cloth he could find and so I think I think the expensiveness uh, of the cloth is another um, point for its probable authenticity all right awesome well that does it for my question so I'll, I'll just go around uh, is there anything that we haven't uh, Joe I'll start with you uh, is there anything that we haven't discussed regarding the traditional painting that you want to discuss with the other panelists um, not really other than, um, you know, I, I think, I think over the years, the, the painting hypothesis has been, you know, pretty well discredited, but obviously there are, are people out there that probably think it is a painting because that, that's sort of a logical conclusion for most people, especially if they don't, haven't done a lot of reading about it. Oh yeah, it's probably a painting. So, uh, but I think, I think over the years, um, I, I think it's been pretty much highly discredited. Awesome. All right. Uh, Mark, is there any, anything regarding the traditional painting hypothesis or Macron's work that we missed that you want to discuss with the others or? Um, well, I think we've covered it really. Um, it, it's, uh, um, if you're going to go to the next step, then then look at uh, what's going on at the molecular level under uh, painting or other artistic, indirect painting, that kind of stuff. Look and see what 
what your sample, assuming you can make an image that has some of the other large scale issues that we were talking about, like negativity and, and highly resolved positive and three dimensionality and all the other stuff. Um, see, see if your, if your image, what it's like on the molecular level and compare that to the molecular levels uh, on the body images of the shroud. All right, awesome. Uh, Hugh, over to you. Is, is there anything regarding Macron's work or the traditional painting that we've missed? No, I, I absolutely agree with Mark's last statement. Let's have a go at it. But I do think I, I, when people criticize the painting, I think you can certainly criticize the pigment. I'd be very happy for people to say, well, if there's no pigment, you can't have an image. And the idea that it was done by a stain or something like that, maybe it's a good idea but I don't believe it and there's minimal evidence for it. Um, but I think the whole issue of superficiality uh, is a massive red herring. Here is a blank piece of linen on which I have rather roughly and quite aggressively placed an image. Can and you turn that over? Because I think I actually saw some redness penetrating the back what? of it. Well, you could probably see through it. Maybe yeah, like it looks like it is penetrating to some level because I can see it through that. So, so even can, on the fabric level, it failed. So can, so can <laughs> Julio. That's his double superficiality. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's it's not going through very much, is it? Anyway, so I I, I think you you know I, I'm not fooled by superficiality. I don't think it's impressive. It, it turns out not that um, not see, that this, something is superficial and something else isn't. But that, in fact, everything is superficial. Uh, get hold of a thread. Of, I don't know whether it's true. You know, if you get hold of a thread of a of a of a, um, a, a printed t-shirt, a t-shirt or something like that, have a look at a thread of that. See whether the ink actually goes into the thread. And I'm I haven't tried it, but I'm I'm guessing it probably doesn't. Yes, but each why do you thread. think? Why do you think Sterp? Why do you why do you think Sterp wouldn't have noticed that that was? Not unusual, uh, and why do they make? I, I think, but this is this is true of so many um, statements that that came out. You know, the first thing, one of the things was that there are no brush marks, as if every painting has to have brush marks, but most of them don't. Um, especially watercolors, they don't have brush marks. You don't have to have brush marks on painting. Uh, an earlier one was uh, that it didn't have an outline. You don't have to have an outline on paintings. It's it's not important, and uh, so I think sort of there was an image, there was an idea as to what a painting exactly was, and because the shroud didn't correspond to it, therefore it wasn't a painting. Whereas if you think more in terms of um, a, a depiction, or yeah, as I say, as a print or something like that, it turns out that in fact. Um, you know, the, the, the shroud has many things in common with painting. Uh, Mark, you, you were Although there to... are important aspects, which it doesn't, of course. I mean, I agree with that. I, okay. I'm looking at my shirt here, and yes, it's got threads, and and uh, I've spilled some breakfast stain, literally, <laughs> on it, and it's kind of superficial in that. But my shirt has a, probably, a, a, the shroud has about 100 fibers per thread 
And that's where you find the superficiality and the uniformity. And you don't come close to that with my breakfast. Uh, well, look at your breakfast under a microscope. I think you could be surprised. Mm -hmm. okay. um, uh, you don't <laughs> even see the fibers. <laughs> no, you, you do have to look at them uh, uh, microscopically. Well, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm, but, I'm a bit hesitant about that, but okay, cool. Yeah, you have to you have to look at them microscopically like Sterp did, and I, I think yeah, I think there are differences kind of thing, but uh, yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to add that nobody brought up, but Hugh brought up about the no brush strokes and no definable borders and that sort of thing. Uh, there's also no layering on the shroud, and that is something. I mean, watch, you know, BBC is always playing these art detectives and stuff like that. You, you do see certain layers, right? Like artists paint, they'll always draw like a little outline and stuff like that underneath, and then they fill it in. That's just the way medieval artists did their did their thing. Um, unless BBC's lying to me and art detectives, yeah, I'm not, not an art not historian. they were making print. If they're doing a traditional painting, uh, my understanding is that they would do it, but you're saying there's... You, well, not necessarily. I mean, you could do the outline in the same color as you were doing the rest of the the rest of the of the of, of the of the shroud or something like that or the, or the rest of the thing and then bleed it in um it's not necessary to draw it i mean obviously lots of artists did draw an outline and then color it in that's a fairly normal standard artistic procedure but i don't think that was the way the shroud was made gotcha no no it's not one thing that would absolutely rule it out it's it's just but there's there's 50 different things like that you could say that that is not con, maybe not consistent with a painting but no by itself it doesn't um uh ipso facto uh rule out a painting then i, I don't think an artist stood there with a paintbrush and a pencil anyway so it doesn't apply fair enough okay cool well yeah i think that i think we've covered it in terms of the traditional painting hypothesis uh you've heard it from all three of the experts, even Hugh Ferry, that well, at least the painting hypothesis as Walter McCrone envisioned it is is falsified. It he didn't you couldn't have used a paintbrush and the pigments and painted it on. Uh, we need to look for something else. So, yeah. With that said, I'll, I'll let each of my panelists give a, a closing word, and uh, yeah, I guess I'll start with uh, Mark this time. So, yeah, Mark, closing thoughts. Um, I think you summarized it well. Um, couldn't help but think about a lot of the qualities you mentioned that uh, if <laughs> if low energy and low penetrating radiation was given off from a body, you wouldn't have to worry about uniformity, borders, lots of things we were talking mm -hmm. about. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, Hugh, over to you. Um, I, I Well, in a way, I'd quite like to pursue Mark's idea. I mean, we can do an awful lot of experiments on the shroud without even taking it out of its box. There's masses of bits of it uh, hiding in the Vatican, well, hiding in Turin in little glass jars, all um, still with good chains of custody and well-labeled. Um, and I think it's a shame that uh, people aren't allowed to experiment with them. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, Joe, yeah, over to you for your closing way. Uh, oh, well, I would just say, um, you know, while the, the painting may be ruled out the traditional painting may be ruled out. Um, there are still a lot of open questions. And personally, um, 
I think radiation is a possibility, but um, I don't know. I just tend to to say that I think whatever caused the image is linked to what we know as the resurrection. And of course, uh, while you can't reproduce resurrection in, in a laboratory, I do agree with Mark's point that you can approach the conundrum with that uh, scientifically at least until it rule in some things and possibly rule out some things, but knowing you'll never be able to hundred percent, you know, reproduce the conditions that caused the image in the first place. Gotcha. All right. Awesome. Well, yeah, I think that that does it. So I just want to thank everybody for, for being here and no questions from the audience, it seems in the live chat. So yeah, I think we are, we are good to go apart from, uh, so yeah, Richard wanted uh, some clarification. Mark, you you are not <laughs> called Mary Antonacci, right? <laughs> I'm using her cell phone because I tried everything with mine, and um, now I'm trying hers. And uh, uh, no, that's that's just my wife. <laughs> awesome. All right, cool. So so yeah, just so the audience knows, uh, next week, uh, guess what? You're getting another big shroud of trend. Uh, related show on Thursday, October 5th. I'm going to be a guest on the Reason and Theology podcast, just giving kind of a general, um, you know, I've got 20 minutes to present on the Shroud's history, uh, 20 minutes to present on the Shroud science and the images and that sort of thing. But it's going to be a great general introduction because he's got a very large audience. So that's great. Uh, you know, we're getting the knowledge about the Shroud out there to a bunch of people. So look out for that. And and uh, otherwise, have a great week, everyone. Take care. All right. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, everybody. And for your patience as well. <laughs>